EscapingTheCave.com. Also on Facebook and at ETC Pod on Twitter. Escaping the Cave. And I'm getting really sick of guys named Todd. Tonzilla X-Pod. Howdy, Tonzilla Files, and welcome back to Escaping the Cave, the Tonzilla X-Pod on the ChristopherMedia.net network. Also got uh, the show up on iTunes, Google Play. I'm already stumbling over myself. That's a bad sign. Also over on Stitcher, and I'm uh, thinking about doing some other things. As far as those uh, platforms go, <clears throat> already choking, too. Good God, I'm off to a rip-roaring start today. I would like to offer a quick apology to about, uh, well, to a handful of you. You got something you were probably not supposed to get the other day from me. If your device was quick... Now, who am I kidding? I just pulled it. <laughs> You're going to find out why. I have a little chunk that I'm going to share with the class. A little bit later on today, I went in a direction. I, I, I've tried three or four times to cut that last podcast. Two or three of those made it into the dust. Well, they made it onto my hard drive. I've still got them. And the last one I finished <laughs> and I posted. And it went in a direction that I'm not real happy with at all. So it was up for a couple of hours. Few of you got it. Few of you got it downloaded. I would like you to consider that or treat it as sort of a collector's item of the uh, Escaping the Cave podcast. Not many people did get it, and it will never be uploaded in its entirety ever, ever again. So I'd like to apologize for that, sort of. The thing is, though, what's really going to suck, and I think the worst part for most of you, is that you're going to hear a lot of that material again. There's a middle part of that, if you know what I'm talking about, if you did get it and you happen to listen to it, the middle part of that I want to use. It needs to be out there, and it really applies to a lot of stuff uh, that I'm going to use going forward. But just not there, okay? I thought the beginning of it was kind of funny. <laughs> In a weird way. All right, I got to quit babbling because I got a lot to get to uh, later on today. Quick uh, rundown of current events. Oh, this is always fun in the world of Trump, isn't it? A guy right up the road from us, his name's Justin Amash. He is a uh, Michigan congressional representative. Washington, D.C. He's also, <laughs> I love this phrase, a member of the Freedom Caucus. The Freedom Caucus, if you're not familiar, my friends, is Xfinity to Comcast's Tea Party. They rebranded the Tea Party, the Freedom Caucus. Apparently the brand had gone sour. The brand is sour. Now they're the fucking Freedom Caucus. Okie dokie. Well, this guy, Justin Amash, uh, is a Tea Party guy. It's the Tea Party. You know, you can change a dog's name, but still shits on your floor. Doesn't matter, right? <laughs> well, anyway, this guy came out. He did something. I don't know if it was a profile in courage or a profile in futility. I'll let you be the judge of that for yourself. But he came out last week, earlier this week, end of last week, whatever it was, and decided that he was going to come out and he was going to come out against Trump. And he was going to say that Trump needs to be impeached for all these reasons. Really, they very eloquently put out, I guess, on the Twitter. Got more on the Twitter coming later. Anyway, he did that. And all the Democrats like, oh, yes, it's our moment. Ooh, uh, the Republicans are fine. No, 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 no. This is not the Republicans come to Jesus moment. It was never going to be that, obviously. This is one dude. 
in the House of Representatives whose vote means nothing when it comes to impeachment. If this was a senator or two, then you might have some. This guy's risking nothing other than his good standing within the Tea Party caucus in the House of Representatives. He risked nothing. Now, the purity class came out. The purity mob came out. And every single other one of the Tea Party guys, they came out and decided to condemn all the stuff that he put out on Twitter <sighs> to show unity, to show a united front against the evil Democrats. It's purity. It's protecting power. I don't know, you know, any better than you do, quite honestly, whether or not everything Amash said was accurate in his, uh, his tweet storm. I have personal opinions on whether or not the man should be impeached. I personally think he has to be if you hold any principles dear, <laughs> if you believe in anything <laughs> other than pragmatic politics, as he makes the masturbatory sign in his chair here. I think you pretty much have to. If you believe any of the rhetoric coming out of the Democratic side of this discussion, if you believe anything in the Mueller report, if you believe any of that, you have to impeach the man. The Democrats have a problem, though, because despite all the rhetoric about this blue wave, oh, the tsunami that flooded America during the midterms, oh, despite that, they're worried. They're worried about this election next year. They're not going to say that. They don't need to say it. You know how I know they're very, very concerned about the election next year? Because they're scared to impeach the man and lose. If they had such a cultural mandate, if America was behind the progressive movement, oh, if they were, they would have impeached him three weeks ago. Nancy Pelosi, the Pelosinator, would not be warning Democrats to be pragmatic if their concern is about winning the election in 2020. She wouldn't care because they're going to win anyway, right? If they've got such a mandate, what does it matter? If the Trumpian base is united and mobilized against the, the coup, as it's going to be sold, they're concerned. Think about it clearly. Try to think objectively about this. Take your little, you know, progressive pussy hat off. Think about all the evidence. Think about everything that's come out in the last few weeks. And understand, I understand pragmatically they're not going to get this through. It's never going to pass through the Senate. He's never going to be convicted and removed from office. But if you think back to everything you've seen, everything you've heard, why are they not moving forward with this just based on principle, just based on American principle? They're terrified of losing to him Again. And I have to tell you, if you lose two consecutive elections to that, you need to break down and start over. Scrape everybody. If you can't beat Donald Trump in two consecutive presidential elections, despite all of this, if your ideas aren't any better than the crap that we've seen coming out of Washington for the last four years. Let me rephrase that. So, you know, you, you, our ideas are better. They're so much better. They're awesome. 
they're 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 progressively pure. That's not what I'm talking about. See, people don't like you any more than they like Trump. That's a problem for you. And if you can't draw people away from that monstrosity, that living, breathing, masturbating, metastasizing, tumor-infecting the White House and all three branches of government, if you cannot convince people to come to your side when that is the alternative, what do you want me to say here? Go team! No, you have a problem. You have a severe freaking problem, man. You got to be able to see that, right? I failed to uh, drag up the audio. I was going to do this. I completely forgot about it before I hit the record button. And uh, you're going to hear a few more flubs. I'm trying to do this in uh, more of a radio type way. So, whoops. But Jeff Daniels. He made some interesting news this week on the MSNBC. Of course, it was on the MSNBC. At least it wasn't the Meadow program. But he came out and he said, these politicians, they're all useless. That's how I heard it anyway. <laughs> A lot of people were saying, oh, he came out and ripped the Republicans. I, don't, I didn't quite hear it that way. Of course, I wasn't paying too close attention. I only heard it once or twice. Maybe that's what he was saying. Either way, I found it really interesting that the profile in Courage then Jeff Daniels was cheering on. He wanted to see somebody in the government get their hands on the unredacted Mueller report and leak it Pentagon's papers style. That's where we've come to. That's where we've gotten to. The government is so dysfunctional. The institutions have broken down to the point where we're begging. Or our entertainment avatars are begging. For somebody, maybe you don't, can. I don't know if espionage is the right word, but they want another Chelsea Manning. That's where we've gotten to with this. <laughs> and that's a joke. And it's such a joke that with all the obstruction, everything is, you got, a, you got an actor from here in Michigan, by the way, a very eloquent, very articulate guy. He, he fires people up. Couldn't lead the SS Minnow, but he's a good speaker. And when you've got him fired up, and in an environment where there's so much obstruction going on, even continuing, I don't know if it meets the legal standard or not, but he's obstructing the investigation. Trump and his entire organization is obstructing every piece of investigation going on in Congress. And you're in this environment, you've got an actor going on NBC and making huge waves and going viral by saying, we need this report, we need somebody to steal it and leak it. And yet you are still terrified that you can't beat that man in 14, 16 months' time, Trump's a piece, a fecal piece of political waste. Great. I'm with you. I'm right there with you. But if you're still concerned about beating him, you got to look in the mirror, friends. Hippies. <sighs> Insufferables. What else I got here? <laughs> I'm just going to plant a little seed here. Uh, President Word Soup today <laughs> went out on a, on a tirade. Did you see this? Uh, I'm recording this. Uh, what is today? Today is the 23rd. I don't even know what day it is. I think it might be Wednesday. <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, he had this, this little meeting. lasted about two, two minutes with Schumer and Pelosi, I think it was. And he storms out. He goes out to this 
podium, a podium that's already set up, and a podium <laughs> that already had a sign set up from Kinko's. And he's acting like this statement and this outrage. They said that he, the, the, the narrative is that they said that he was engaged in a cover-up. And he got all offended and he was outraged and blah, 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 righteous indignation. I'm going to run out to the microphone and talk truth to the people. <laughs> well, <laughs> if that's how it happened, how, how, how did the sign get there from Kinko's before the meeting had ever ended? Huh, that's peculiar. How do people not see that? How do you not see that if you're a Trump supporter? How do you not ask that question? Please, I, I, no, don't answer that. Do not, do not answer that question if you are a Trump supporter. I know exactly how that works. I've already gotten into it. I may get into it a little bit more today. <sighs> but yeah, more of this, I'm the most trans... I need to get a Trump imp uh, impersonation down, don't I? I'm the most transparent president ever. I can't do it. I'm not really good at impressions. I apologize for that. I can do enough now. Um, most transparent president ever. No collusion, no obstruction. Still coming out of his mouth. It's, it's <laughs> obscene, really. But this is going to tie into something I have for you later on. I want you to think about that. No, no obstruction, no collusion. The fake news thing. These little slogans. I want you to tie it into something. I want you to work on this. This is some homework I've got for you for the next week because you'll see where I'm going today. It's going to get a little more intense even from this as I move forward the next couple of weeks. I want you to tie in fake news, no collusion, no obstruction. I want you to tie that in with kids in cages. These are propaganda slogans designed to elicit a visceral response from those from the right target. I want you to think really long and hard about that. There are other little slogans out there, Democrats. You're not propaganda-free. I know you think you are. But then again, so does the typical Fox News viewer. They really do think it's fake news. They really do think that no obstruction, that he was exonerated from obstruction, despite the fact <clears throat> that the report said he can't. It, it, you see how this works? It works on you as well. I'll be going into that. I've been kind of teasing this a little while. It's, it's deep material. It's hard to put together. But I'm getting there. I think I hit my method this week after <laughs> my little fit the other day. What else we got going on here? Is there anything I want to talk about that? I'd like to kill the Sprint guy. Oh, great. Another wireless commercial. You know what I'm talking about, that ad? I hate that guy. I despise the Sprint guy. I'm sick of him. I want him to go the way of Jared. I want him and Jared to hang out in, like, an apartment playing Nintendo 64. Yeah, I know that's an old system. I want to punish him with that. I never want him to be able to leave that apartment, only have Nintendo 64, Jared the Subway guy, and maybe Kool-Aid with no sugar in it. Maybe you'll have to eat like Burger King every single day of the week. Have I gone on too far with the Sprint guy? I don't care. I can't stand him. Never liked him. You should watch TV with me someday. <laughs> it's an insufferable experience, I promise you. I asked my girlfriend. Saw something neat on Quillette this week that I found uh, entertaining. 
Somebody wrote a piece. They published a piece on their website called Conformity and the Dangers of Group Polarization. I would like you to go back and look at the uh, previous podcast's title, and you'll see why I found that immensely amusing. I used to actually get a little bit pissed off when I would see my own stuff. Now, I'm not saying they're stealing it. Obviously, they're not. I am nothing to them. My stuff doesn't reach anyone associated with Colette. But it used to bother me <laughs> that I would be saying stuff, and all of a sudden, Bill Maher. Oh, he's notorious for stealing my stuff without hearing it. <laughs> but somebody like Bill Maher, or I, I just, it would just annoy me. Now I find it funny because it's happening more and more and more. I think I posted two or three different examples of my own little personal Facebook page. I'd do it to toot my own horn. Of course I do. So what? It's the narcissism of the online age. Deal with it. You've got your own. I'll point some out later on. You'll love it, I promise. I got a little something-something on uh, Twitter. I'm doing this at the end, though. I want to kind of break you in a little bit. Oh, the imagery. Let's get started. I thought that was an appropriate tune for the show today, Land of Confusion, Genesis, heading back to the 80s. We are going to be heading back to uh, the 1980s quite a bit, actually a little bit further than that. Maybe not today. Actually going to spend most of our time in the 2010s, right around 2011. But I wanted to start off with that tune because it um, ties into this first segment. I want to talk about the uh, DIKW Pyramid. And what that is, is the Data Information Knowledge Wisdom Stack. Okay, I want you to envision a pyramid. And at the base, the really wide base is data. Data is everywhere. You move up from data to information. <laughs> Hopefully, <laughs> right? You get rid of all the useless crap, then you have usable information. And when you delve into that, you put it into context, then you move up a little higher on the pyramid and you're dealing with knowledge. You are a knowledgeable person at this point, right? And at the very top, the very pinnacle, where very few people reside, that's why it's a little tiny chunk, is the wisdom pyramid. It's a really useful visual, visualization of learning and incorporating things into your mind. The DIKW Pyramid. We're looking into, and I, the reason I'm bringing this up is because we are uh, drowning at the very bottom layer of that pyramid at the data level. We're flooded with it as every product, news outlet, ideology, and religion compete for your eyeballs, compete for your revenue-generating clicks, compete for sales, even followers, to sort of inflate their status as social media influencers. This ties directly in to Marshall McLuhan, also Neil Postman, uh, Nicholas Carr. You're going to be hearing a lot of that guy's name eventually, not today so much. And this guy named um, Elias, I'm going to butcher this name, <laughs> but this is where we're going to spend most of the time today. His name's uh, Elias Abujuande, or Abujuande, Abu, uh, I can't say it, Abujuande, A-B-O-U-J-O-U-A-N-D-E. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to mention his work a lot today, and I'm going to put his uh, Amazon link 
inside of the description of the episode, and I'll probably uh, throw it up on my Facebook page as well. Um, you're going to want to buy this book, I think, <laughs> by the time I get done here. But I'm going to call him Dr. Eli <laughs> moving forward, okay? I hate to disrespect the guy, I, but I can't say his name. I don't know how to pronounce it, and I don't want to mispronounce it. So Dr. Eli. Anyway, all of these folks, McLuhan, Postman, Carr, Dr. Eli, several others, warned us about human beings being overwhelmed and unable to sift through, let alone process as true and false, the data cacophony attacking them constantly as we become more and more globally and instantaneously connected. McLuhan and uh, Postman's era, the 60s through the 80s, that was child's play, okay, compared to this, what we're experiencing and enduring today. But the ideas, this is really key, I think, to me, the ideas and the observations that they held in the 1960s, maybe the 1980s, even the 1990s, early 2000s, right, are useful in the context of when they were written, okay, to maintain a perspective on where we have come from. And these ideas hold. No one has time or has had time for a long time to sift through all of this data. Now, you sophisticated media consumers, you will try. I give you credit for that. I know you do. These folks get rid of the needless static. The stuff they know is propaganda. The stuff they know is fake just generated as clickbait, they get rid of it. They disconnect from these factually malignant sources and still go further than that. They scrutinize what they read, adjusting for inevitable bias. Maybe even especially their own bias. These are truly sophisticated media consumers, and they're rare. And sometimes I think people move in and out of that state. I know I do. Periodically, depending on my state of mind, so how cynical I am, how sick and tired of everything I am. <laughs> I went through that this week a little bit. I don't think, you know, I, I think that's true. I think that that sort of changes every now and then. But if you can maintain at least some awareness of bias, both in the material you're reading and in your own bias and what you're looking for, you're uh, heads and tails ahead of most people. Are you one of these people that actually curates what? you're taking into your mind? Do you think about the information you're ingesting, both with your eyeballs, with your mind, and with your heart? What you're internalizing? Are you sure? Have you even thought about that? Seriously thought about it? Now, let's assume, just for a moment, that you are one of these sort of unicorns, right? How many others do you know other than you? How many other truly critical thinkers, and maybe more importantly, Critical consumers of information do you personally encounter on a daily basis? Here's another question. How influential are they? Do they even have a voice? Or are they shouted down and drowned out by the competing mobs? This is the effect of not only the for-profit boutique news, as I touched down in the Media 101 cast. It's also a byproduct of boutique for-profit, or follower-prestige clickbait data. To a point now, it's understandable. I have to remember this. It's hard for me sometimes. It's, it, it is understandable. There's too much to sort out. But here's the thing, man. Trump's fake news is either clickbait propaganda or both. Everywhere. It exists. It's not just MSNBC or CNN or 
from the other side, Fox. And it's hard to tell the difference. The propaganda has gotten so sophisticated. The agenda-driven information has gotten so sophisticated that sometimes it's impossible to tell when you're being propagandized, when you're ingesting fake news. And when that happens, when you can't tell the difference, it's understandable to cling to an informational life raft. Anything to keep you afloat, to keep you, uh, give you at least the illusion that you're understanding what's going on, right? Gives you a framework to work within instead of just a state of confusion, a land of confusion. Have to remember that. It's important to, to at least keep some empathy and, and sense of understanding about this. Because even the, even the best intentioned people can get lost in this mess. Now, it's understandable to a point. Okay, but once you're aware of that, <laughs> you are responsible for your own mind. <sighs> you are. You can't blame everybody. Can't blame everybody else all the time. He'll try, though. Now, there's something else that's going to lay the foundation for the rest of this podcast, and it's on my uh, escapingthecave.com homepage. If you go to that website, you go to the very top, you're going to see a tab entitled uh, The Legend of Tamus, Illusion of Wisdom. This is a story from Plato. I forget the uh, dialogue that it was in, but I'm going to give you a real quick, I mean, very insufficient recap and encapsulation of what Plato was getting at with the uh, illusion of wisdom. He was having a discussion in this um, thing about writing. Writing was a new technology back then, or he was framing it as such. Okay, And the discussion at its core was about whether or not writing was a good thing. One side was arguing that it made people smarter, that it gave people the ability to retain information and spread information. Whereas the other side said that it cost human beings more than it provided because it destroyed their need to exercise the memory. And that writing could make people appear a whole lot smarter than they really are. That is the crux inside the legend of Tamus. I think Tamus was a king. I haven't read this. I should have read it before I sat down. But, I, but that's the basic fundamental idea behind it. That with writing and with this new technology, thousands of years ago, that people could prop up an illusion of wisdom. An illusion that they're a lot smarter than they really are. Neil Postman got into this. I was introduced to it, I think, probably almost 15 years ago by uh, Neil Postman's Technopoly. I think that's the opening segment of it. And it's like, yep, I get this. And the crux of this is how technology changes us. Whether we realize it or not, and most often we don't. This is the message from people like Marshall McLuhan, Neil Postman, before the internet. They were warning about the, the, the damage television was doing, how television, just network over-the-air TV was changing us, changing how we thought, how we digested information, how we perceived the world, how accurately we perceived the world, how we would crux and depend and flock toward entertainment rather than actual information, and how that made us susceptible, less intelligent. Nicholas Carr, and there have been others, uh, they're usually slightly obscured, sort of lost in the cacophony of nothing slash everything. You don't hear too much about these guys, but Nicholas Carr put out a landmark book a few years ago called The Shallows. 
And that updated McLuhan, Postman, and a few other people's ideas into the internet age. Other people have done it. I'm not saying they haven't, but this is the one that I have gravitated to, and it was sobering. You'll be hearing Nicholas Carr, and you'll be hearing The Shallows a whole lot. I suggest, I would highly, highly advise you that if you're interested in this subject, and if you're still listening to this podcast, I assume you are, if you have not read or even sort of thumbed through Nicholas Carr's book, The Shallows, get your butt on Amazon and read it. If you're interested in this topic, don't take my word for it. Don't just let me talk into your ear. I know my voice is soothing. But don't take my word for this. Grab the book, read it, see what you think. See if it resonates with you. See if you have some sense of familiarity about it. He started writing this book because he was a writer and found himself online so much and suddenly unable to concentrate. He couldn't read a damn book. He couldn't stay on topic. Does this sound familiar to you? Are any of you sort of noticing that in your own lives? I'll bet you more than a few are. I was having this conversation with people 10 years ago. <clears throat> we had no idea what it was. <clears throat> I can't read a book anymore. I can't stay on the damn... Well, this is part of the reason why. Nicholas Carr gets into that. It's the click and bolt nature of the internet. Click on a website, you look at it for a minute, you find whatever it is you're looking for, you go on to the next, go on to the next, go on to the next. It kills your ability to concentrate on anything. There's a physical sort of something tied into neuroplasticity in the mind. Thankfully, according to Mr. Carr, that's also the cure. You can regain your ability to focus, think, drill down, dive down into topics deeply. Disconnect. I've talked about this. I'm almost certain. I think in the um, Cyberspace Monkeys podcast, I think I went into that. That's not really what I'm talking about today, though. But I am going to talk about what technology has cost us. And the illusion of wisdom, the illusion of knowledge. Memorizing out-of-context facts to offer others a show of ostentatious ignorance rather than possessing authentic wisdom or knowledge. Plato thinks it began with writing, but that's been one of the common themes all the way through. Gutenberg, in his press, took us from an oral mind, speaking, to what Neil Postman called the typographic mind. We started to read. Reading allows for the deep drilling into a subject. It also requires a lot of work, a lot of attention, a lot of focus. If you're doing it right and you're choosing good material, you are downloading, to stay in the 21st century, I guess, someone else's carefully researched and detailed knowledge into your own mind. With context, usually. That's the nature of books. They're detailed. They're thorough. If the author has done his job. Now, Marshall McLuhan, back in the 1960s, he uh, sort of became the guy who founded the field of study called media ecology. He's kind of seen as the prophet on the whole topic, the, the, the founding father, if you will. And he was one of the very first ones to scream the warning about the effects of technology, the deeper unconscious effects of technology. I suggest that our, uh, Edward R. Murrow did something very similar in 1958. I got into that in the Media 101 podcast. McLuhan also coined the phrase, classic phrase, the medium is the message. Maybe you've heard that. And that's suggesting that the medium, 
the books, TV, radio, podcasting, Twitter, or even the Click and Bounce websites all have less to do with content than how the content affects information consumption and discourse. And maybe more importantly, the perception of wisdom, you know, both the internal perception of our own wisdom egocentrically and how we evaluate who we listen to. Some people, like Carr, go as far as to say that because of neuroplasticity, the mind's ability to rewire its synaptic connections, our minds are physically changed. I just mentioned this, physically changed by technology. Personally, I and others have a suspicion that this is tied into the uh, surging diagnoses of ADHD, the inability to focus on anything. I can't prove this. I am not a doctor. Do not take my medical advice, but I highly suspect that if you're having a problem, that if your child is having a problem with attention deficit or the inability to focus, and he's attached to the internet or his phone or some sort of electronic device all day long, maybe disconnect him. I don't know. I'm just saying, do what you want, your kid. I'm not going to tell you how to raise your child. (laughs) But maybe consider it. Lots of other people have put forth that idea. And Neil Postman, he didn't care one way or another. He did not care if TV and the rest of the technology moving forward made people stupider. Wasn't really his thing. He was inclined, his word, to think that they did. (laughs) But he didn't really care to address it because he didn't need to. Here's a quick paragraph from Amusing Ourselves to Death. (laughs) He says that, uh, I will not burden myself with arguing the possibility, for example that oral people are less developed intellectually than writing people or that television people are less developed intellectually than either. My argument is limited to saying that a major new medium changes the structure of discourse. It does so by encouraging certain uses of the intellect, by favoring certain definitions of intelligence and wisdom, and by demanding a certain kind of content. In a phrase, by creating new forms of truth-telling. I will say once again that I am no relativist in this matter, and that I believe the epistemology created by television not only is inferior to a print-based epistemology, but is dangerous and absurdist. Do I even need to transfer this forward, to move this forward a little ways? This was written in 1985. (laughs) Amusing ourselves to death. It doesn't take a genius to connect the dots from 1985 to 2019. That's Neil Postman. That book's a classic. There's another. If you're interested in this stuff and you've never read Postman, read Postman. Amusing Ourselves to Death and uh, Technopoly. There's a couple other ones. I'll be happy to <laughs> pass along if you're interested. Again, 1985 to now, the, the the dot connection is obvious. And if you can't see that, if you if that is absent to you, this is not the podcast for you. <laughs> Guys, we fucked. <laughs> is right down the hall to the left. Maybe that's more your speed today. Back to the topic, though, the illusion of wisdom. Contemporary times in the Internet. Nicholas Carr and others go into the illusion of knowledge in depth. They are channeling Plato, Marshall McLuhan. I'll be spending a lot of time today with that other person I just mentioned, Dr. Eli. As I said, I'll add the uh, link to his book in the description of the podcast here. The book is called Virtually You, Abu Jawande. If you want to try it on your own, 
but he devoted his uh, entire eighth chapter to exactly that. Now, both Dr. Eli and uh, Nicholas Carr both talk about the horizontal rather than the vertical nature of online information gathering. So in other words, you're spending more time looking for answers, bouncing from website to website, than you actually spend reading them. And not only answers, agreeable answers, as I lightly invoke Jonathan Haidt and his elephant. He also says that collecting data on the internet doesn't involve true reading. It's actually the evasion of reading. You're clicking, you're flicking, On social media, you're scrolling through virtual piles of cyberspace garbage, and you're not reading anything, not learning anything. You're not deep diving and drilling down at a topic. You're bouncing from place to place to place to place to place. So that's horizontal as opposed to vertical. Picking a topic, picking a subject, drilling down, down to the mantle of it. Something like 20 years ago, people studied this stuff back when the internet was young, and they probably still do today. But I know that 20 years ago, they found that 75% of online readers scanned rather than read word for word. You know what I'm talking about. We probably all do this by now. Pick a website, pick some piece of information, open it up, and our eyes just scan the page looking for certain keywords, certain ideas that we have found something worthwhile. And people figured that out. I mean, they know how to make clickbait now. They know people want the information they're looking for right now, this very minute. They don't want to learn anything in the real sense of the word. Most often, people are looking to feed their elephant, Heights elephant. And they'll keep clicking and they'll keep scrolling until they find the elephant's Twinkie. Dr. Eli compares it to uh, online foraging. Great way to look at it. Where the informational hunter-gatherer is simply choosing the easiest prey, the lowest hanging fruit. And Eli even uh, includes a quick how-to guide. I mentioned it a minute ago about uh, showing you how you, the online content creator, can snare the unsuspecting hunter-gatherer. Lays it all out for you. Tells you what people are looking for. Little things like bullet points. Summing things up at the very top. It looks like clickbait because it is clickbait. We're all familiar with it now, right? Ask a question in the headline. Oh, I've seen it about podcasts, too. Oh, you wanna, you, do you really want to get your podcast going? Make sure you ask a question in the description. I tried it in the first one. The Media 101, go look at it. I tried it. It worked. <sighs> There's another aspect of this, too, is uh, narcissism. And uh, social media, web pages, old-time blogs. Everybody's got a podcast now. Everybody, including me. Mine's awesome, though. And also the tendency to overestimate one's own aptitudes. The Dunning-Kruger effect. We're all familiar with that now, right? All of this is a huge factor. Huge. It deserves its own space. More than I'm going to offer today, but it will get some at some point in time. I promise you that. All right, here's a fun little quote for you. Let's travel back to 1991, and this is from a very early internet fan, a guy who's really a proponent of where the internet was going to take us, these fantastical places, right? He says that just as the advent of the Colt 45 revolver during the taming of the Wild West equalized the balance between a small person and a large one, right? Telecommunications 
can equalize the balance of power between citizens and power brokers. Utopia. Star Trek is coming. Oh, it's equality and democracy. Oh, thank God it's here. That's where he thought it was going. And as Dr. Eli put it, global connectivity, he, they hoped, would peacefully erase unwarranted privilege, bringing us closer together than ever before, enhancing democracy. An Athens without slaves, brought on by democratizing information. So how's that working out for us? <laughs> Tearing down the informational boundaries online. Now, maybe I'm perpetuating that right now. I don't know. I'll leave such judgments to you today. But tearing down those informational boundaries online has and is obliterating utopian notions of democracy because everyone feels equally informed. And as the Dunning-Kruger thing pointed out, qualified. My ignorance has as much merit as your knowledge because it's my opinion. Oh, my holy opinion. We've all heard that at some point, right? It's my opinion. I'm entitled to it. I'll think what I want. This is informational anarchy. Open access to data, even information. Remember the pyramid, right? Open access to data, even information, the next level up, without introspection, without concern for external truth, let alone context, is a fundamental block to legitimate knowledge, the third tier on that pyramid. And you're never getting to wisdom if you can't get to knowledge. But since we can, you know, sort of curate our propaganda now and use Google, the Google, as a cheap imitation for real learning, actual retention of information, it's easy to erect a cheap facade, the illusion of knowledge. Are you with me? Good. And it's a facade that's easily torn down, of course, uh, but because we've surrounded ourselves with like thinkers, like thinkers who adore our illusion because it reinforces theirs. No illusion demolition is ever completed. If there's a danger, we retreat to the echo chamber. We stop engaging people who want to tear down our facade, our illusion, that want to look behind our little curtain and see the joke that Oz might be. Maybe they want to look up Dorothy's skirt. I don't know. You decide. You can pick your own metaphor here. I, I am however you want to do it. I don't personally want to look up Dorothy's skirt. Never did. Did you? Where am I going with this? I'm going to come back to where I was now. What it boils down to, though, is one man, one vote with facts. My friends, one man, one vote Every opinion's equal. I'm entitled to my opinion. It's just as valid as yours. Does not apply. Does not apply. I'm going to say this again. Does not apply to truth. Does not apply to facts. It doesn't even apply to the comprehension of reality at all. The whole concept is laughable in any discussion about an external truth. Your opinion, your holy opinion... Say you have the opinion that the earth is flat. It doesn't matter at all if you're searching for the external truth about a round earth. And why are you searching for it anyway? It's already been proven. All right, quit looking for that. You're wasting your time on that. And quit wasting your time dealing with people who think the earth is flat. Please, for the love of Christ, stop. 
if we ignore them, maybe they'll starve. Anyway, one man, one vote does not apply to reality. Okay. Now, today, everyone is more than a decade into being able to express these holy opinions online about everything, whenever they want, at every whim. How do you suppose that affects the organic original version of this online digital avatar? I have a couple of examples I could tell you. I told you about the guy in Iowa, right? On my hitchhiking trip back in 2016. It was the last day. I was just about back to Chicago, and I'm at a truck stop. He just gotten dropped off, walking through a parking lot, see a guy. He's from Homer, Michigan, right up the street from where I, right up the road from where I grew up. Thought I'd say hi. You know what he did? It was right after Trump's election, right after the election. I didn't say anything political to him. He just started posting to me. Eh, we sure showed those libtards, didn't we? He had Confederate flags decorating his truck all the way through the cab. I, I did not indicate anything to him that I was political at all. I just said, hi, I grew up near Homer. How you do? We sure showed those libtards, didn't we? The guy was basically coming out of Twitter and is belching something into a, a completely, it was a complete non sequitur. Maga. I think I told the story last year in the other podcast when I was out on that same trip just before the election this time. I was in Phoenix on Halloween having a nice little gathering, nice little Halloween party at this apartment complex. Everybody's getting along great. Then a liberal guy decided he was going to drop some truth on Trump guy. And they basically began posting their prefabricated talking points, propaganda points to one another. Can you imagine how that went? Neither one of them were listening to each other. <laughs> Neither one of them were making a hell of a lot of sense. They were lobbing, steaming piles of propaganda at each other, and it almost came to blows. That's how it affects the organic version. The online avatar version does affect the organic version if you're not careful. I've seen it. You've seen it. We've all seen it. To pretend it doesn't exist is ridiculous and is delusional. And to pretend it's not getting worse is even more delusional, Mr. Coyote. And here's something else I wonder while I'm talking about it. You know, those students that we see on all these college campuses, right? These kids have spent their entire formative life on social media. I wonder if what we're seeing with, like, free speech it attacks on all these speakers is some sort of organic manifestation of what I'm what I've just been talking about. If they're taking this online avatar personality, being so used to being able to post and interject their holy comment into every conversation they see without waiting until anybody's done speaking, or without having to consider that somebody might have another point they'd like to make before they're allowed to post. I wonder if this has anything to do with what we're seeing on college campuses now and the mob behavior of shouting somebody down that you don't like. That is internet behavior. That's, it's, it's a direct reflection of how people behave on Twitter and on Facebook. I've attributed that to authoritarianism in the last few weeks. I still hold to that. I think that's a possibility, but I'm also offering up the possibility that the, the internet is manifesting itself in real life. <clears throat> that online behavior is becoming public behavior now. 
The guy in Iowa, like I said, he was posting. The guys I talked about in Phoenix in 2016, just for the election. Trump guy, liberal guy, both posting. Started by liberal guy that time, by the way. Wasn't a Trump voter. Trump voter was the sensible one in that case. I wonder if these idiots that we're seeing polluting discourse on college campuses around the country, I wonder if they're just sort of trolling and they don't know it. Or maybe they do and just don't care. That would be even worse. I'm sure each and every one of us have examples of this in our personal lives. People who cannot keep from interrupting you with some truth they've clearly found in some unsavory back alley online. Yet they think that it carries weight. They actually think it carries as much weight as anything from reputable sources because information has become democratized. One man, one vote, my truth. You with me here? They've internalized, conveniently, narcissistically, and ridiculously, that all opinions are created equal. Therefore, no evaluation of their opinions' merit is required. And the best part, you've seen it. I know you've seen it. When these half-facts are challenged, right? A hole gets poked in the cheap illusion of knowledge. People, especially digital versions of these people, immediately accuse you of dismissing the vast wisdom (laughs) they have earned through hours of surfing the internet. They call their click-and-bounce collection of low-hanging fruit research. They do it. Do your research. I've done my research. Have you? Is that what you've done? Is that really what you've done? Have you researched your topic thoroughly, Cicero? Have you? Hmm. I don't know. Now, according to Dr. Eli, when the internet and the holy click took over, it allowed the user to personalize their informational reality, their personal informational reality. I call it their boutique. Tailor it into boutique truth. It became an interaction with rather than a reception of news and information. Dr. Eli continues by saying, correctly in my view, that in the informational consumer's experience, receptivity, okay, stay with me here, receptivity in the passive, absorptive, open to what you may have to teach me sense of the idea is antiquated. Do I need to say that again? I'm going to say that again. I think that might be a little confusing. In the informational consumer's experience, receptivity, the old idea that you were passive when you were learning something, when you were taking in information, right? That you would be open to what someone else could teach you. That they may know more than you and you're receptive. Receptivity. The the idea behind that is antiquated now. It's out of style. It's done. Now it's the active rather than receptive, especially interactive relationship with the information that's taken over, right? The holy opinion is now in charge here. The opinion, or in Heights model, the emotive prejudgment, the elephant is in charge. It's the gatekeeper of your information and whether or not you'll accept it. People have said that the gatekeepers are gone, Right? Now, that's not entirely true. Where once there were at least semi-qualified and people who possessed at least some, you know, reasonable degree of professional expertise, 
varying quality, I suppose. But they were at least there. They knew what they were doing. The professionals, there were standards in place. The new gatekeepers are our personal pachyderms. Nothing gets through that skull unless it feeds the elephant of personal pre-opinion, preconceived notions. At one time, the assumption was that the message sender, the person talking, knew what they were talking about, that they held more factual information than the receiver did. Now, in the world where the distinction between reality and chosen perception, fact and opinion, those lines are blurred now. What rules? It's informational anarchy. I'll say it again. Not only that, but everyone's now broadcasting as though they're qualified I-reporters or E-reporters covering the news of the day as eminent experts on everything. Whether they're at the latest Trump rally, at Antifa march, I have a story about that I'd love to tell you, or ranting away to whomever will listen on Facebook Live or YouTube Live. Don't say podcast. Don't you do it. Nope. This is different. <laughs> the gatekeepers are gone. He shouldn't have thought those bad thoughts. That's why I made him go on fire. Now, some people have cheered the quote-unquote freedom that comes from banishing the gatekeepers out of the proverbial cornfield. It's good what you've done to Dan. It's real good. That was swell. It was just swell. That was really good. I liked it a little bit better when we had real television. Things like that. But how can you mean it? Why, television is much better than anything we ever used to get. Oh, yes, it's fine. Why, Anthony's television is the best television we've ever seen. <laughs> that is such a creepy Twilight Zone. Have you never seen that? Go look it up. But like the Twilight episode, this classic here, seizing authority from even imperfect adults... Granted, imperfect, I understand that, but giving it to children who are slaves to their id's impulses can have horrific consequences. In 2011, Dr. Eli wrote that we were faced with the possibility that intelligent debate would be replaced with what he called a muddle of facts and outsized online personalities. Does this sound familiar? In 2011, he said this before we had really much of a notion about these virtual social media celebrities moving beyond YouTube to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Most people seem to think that these people that I'm talking about, these social media celebrities, are limited to the trivial realms once occupied by Paris Hilton or a Kardashian. That's not the case anymore. Social media influencing, which in its traditional definition is brand building via one degree of propaganda or another, right? Marketing, branding. That's long since spread to social and political influencing now, where the only claim to fame are opinions tailored to one tribe or another, sort of like a Glenn Beck comes to Twitter. Beyond that, the narcissism coming from social media and the anonymity and lack of accountability inherent in the medium, the social media medium, allows people to consider themselves as simply too good to need a teacher, a mentor, an editor, or even a fact checker. They don't bother to check their work. They don't bother to put forth anything, any sort of effort to make sure they got anything right. It doesn't matter if it's right. It's not meant to be right. It's meant to get attention. All too often, we're quick to elevate this holy personal opinion to something that resembles the final authority's word, conflating and presenting usually thoughtless opinions, remember that, as unquestionable truths. 
External truths, my ass. Now, perhaps, perhaps you're, you're balking at the phrase thoughtless opinions. They often are. Sorry, maybe even yours. <gasps> he said it. Oh, you asshole. I'll get to that soon enough. Individual and professional influencers alike disseminate this quote-unquote authoritative content. They're content producers. For the enjoyment, praise, and consumption of their followers. Their fans. Internet performers. In the context of legitimate media, as Time put it, maybe 10 years ago, every time a news source dies and an online opinion site rises up, we move a little closer to the fact-starved day when the loudmouths have only themselves to talk about. The latest social media outrage story on the nightly news. Thanks, Brooke Baldwin. Social media's outraged. Ah! There's a guy named Andrew Keene, and he called this a democratic swamp of crowd-generated content. That's such a great phrase, I want to repeat it. A democratic swamp of crowd-generated content. Crowd-generated content. (laughs) Gustav, I summon thee. I'll get to Mr. LeBon at some point again, I promise. And people looking for honest information become buried in this democratic swamp of crowd-generated content. And there's also another effect, the jaded cynical one, where after being so consistently exposed to swamp muck, the honest information seeker becomes suspicious of everything. Regardless of what it is, he's immediately suspicious of everything and still gives up. Now, maybe he doesn't join an ideological tribe for the pre-produced narrative benefit it provides. But by disengaging, He's eventually uninformed at the same time, right? Now, he's still closer to the truth than the man gorging on propaganda. That's an old Jefferson thing. Man who knows nothing closer to the truth than the man who believes falsehoods. Duh. I can't quantify it. I can't quantify it. It's just a sense I have. Okay? I don't know how many have just checked out have just given up on all this until election day, or even maybe just given up on that and letting, just riding the roller coaster wherever it goes. I don't know. They don't have their echo chamber that I can go check, that I can go take a temperature in, right? They don't have a hashtag. But those who have decided to stop trying to get to the truth because they can't tell good information from bad and become folks who've adopted a doctrine and chosen to seek out whatever supports the doctrine's inseminated opinions, I'll get to that too, thereby feeding the elephant, those folks have become a locust plague on the national discourse. I'm telling you, if you want real information, you are in trouble. As I pointed out in the Media 101 pod, The online and electronic media, by necessity, has been forced into abandoning the very thing they supposedly provide. News. At least semi-objective information. They cannot provide it. You don't want it. They can't sell it. It has to be tailored to your wants. Your tribe has become boutique infotainment. And to be honest, it was probably doomed as soon as quote-unquote news became a market commodity trafficked on a nationwide marketplace, even a global marketplace. It's got to have an audience, got to have a base, got to have 
a target demo. The Enlightened Citizenry has abandoned enlightenment in favor of ostentatious displays of sophistry. I love that phrase. I love it. I love it so much. I'm proud of that. Ostentatious displays of sophistry. Maybe a little irony there. <laughs> ostentatious displays of sophistry. Mmm, scrumptious. Being right in an argument means less than appearing right now. Being smart means nothing compared to appearing smart to your virtual fans or whomever happens to be watching this particular example of trial by rhetorical combat. It's barbaric blood sport. Rather than the forum, it's the Colosseum. But it's not even that, really. I mean, these are plastic gladiators with distorted views of their own brilliance. They've learned to actually believe their own avatar's delusional bullshit. I mean, think about this. If you cut their internet connection and access to the echo chamber or Google and ready, readily available scripture, ideological scripture or doctrine, they most often either stutter, stammer, trip all over themselves or cognitively lurch toward anything ridiculous or not, in some desperate attempt to maintain the elevated self-image, the illusion of knowledge fraudulently built online. They have to maintain it because it's their identity now. Height's model nailed this too. When the illusion of wisdom propped up with bullshit begins breaking down and the post hoc scramble for rationalizing argumentation fails, they often say something confoundingly, jaw-droppingly ignorant and then simply state, I believe what I believe. Okay, that's my opinion. I'm sticking to it. And that's if you're lucky. Sometimes you get some twisted version of, you can't prove God isn't real. Just apply that as you see fit. The basic idea of that. <laughs> or you'll never convince me the earth isn't flat. Or you'll never convince me that vaccinations don't cause autism. You'll never convince me that 9-11 wasn't an inside job. Exactly, and that's the point. You'll never convince me. Take them at their word when they say that and disconnect from the, engage, the, the conversation, the interaction. Move along, you found a zombie. <sighs> breathe, breathe. There is no point in, in, in interacting or engaging this person anymore. Let them go eat their brains. <laughs> if they can find any. <laughs> They're not stupid. These people aren't stupid. It's a, it's a mistake to classify them as ignorant or stupid. I'll get to more of this later. I, I, you have to be patient with me here. But you have to understand the data glut. You have got to understand how appealing this is to people who desperately want to understand the world but are overwhelmed with data and don't know where to go to get good information. Now, of course, there are really stupid people out there. There are really stupid people who believe really stupid things because they desperately want to believe them. To hell with them. You're always going to have them. I'm more concerned with the people, right now anyway, I'm more concerned with the people who can't tell the difference and have just given up and clung to anything they can find. Those people are real. There's a lot of them. I'm sure of it. I can't prove it. I just know it's true. Moving on, you can see this <laughs> my ignorance is as good as their knowledge thing as an extension of democracy. You can see it that way if you like to. One man, one vote, even on it comes to facts. 
Maybe you see it as a huge step toward democracy's utopian evolution. Yeah? A simple, basic, fundamental democracy demands, if not enlightened, at least an informed citizenry. It's essential, and by informed, the founders did not mean propagandized with happy facts. Recitable happy facts. I'm informed. Fake news. See, I'm informed. That's not what they meant. Children in cages, I'm informed. See, I can repeat it. That's not what they meant. I promise you. I do not know their souls. I could not read Tom and Jefferson's heart. James Madison, none of them. Didn't know them. Never met them, believe it or not. I can't channel them in some you know, sleep state seance at 3 a.m. I can't do that, believe it or not. I know it's surprising, but I can't. But I can tell you, that's not what they meant by being informed. I promise. I guarantee it. Bet you my soul, bet it right now. Now, it's also possible to extract context-free facts that are useful for your own personal propaganda campaign by bouncing from site to site or Google result to Google result looking for supporting data. You can do that. It's real easy online. We've all seen it at work. If you're looking to deceive yourself or someone else, the internet and social media is your playground. It's your brothel, if you will. If your goal is to preach on the street corner to be seen by man, social media is your pulpit. Knock yourself out if that's your goal. And can you find good, conscientious people? Absolutely. I have. People I'm glad I've met. Even if only online. I met one on Twitter. On Twitter of all places last week. Hi, Robin. Hope I'm saying that right. But are they the norm? Are these people the norm? If they are, if they are, if these types of people are the kinds of people that make up most of social media's user base, and they may be, they may indeed be. If they are, are they the ones speaking? Are they the ones who have a voice? Are they making these reasonable voices heard? Maybe setting an example, inspiring others to come out and speak. Hell no. I don't even do that on Twitter. Me. I'm not afraid to speak. <laughs> Maybe you've noticed. <laughs> I'm not afraid of pretty much anything online. I've engaged in combat for 11, 12 years. Really good at it. I choose not to. And if I'm not going to do it, because the fucktardery is so thick, why would people who have a le less of an interest in this stuff, why would they do that? Why would they bother? I'm coming up with a theory here. After a couple of weeks on the Twitter, I hate the Twitter. I got more on the Twitter coming up for you in the next segment. But I've spent a couple of weeks on there, and I found that the people with the most followers are the biggest douchebags ostentatious, obnoxious, just downright jackasses. And the people that have like 47, 55, looking at you, Ruben, are the ones who seem to be the most sensible. <laughs> because sensibility doesn't attract attention. You got to be an asshole to thrive and get fans and followers on Twitter. Or you've got to be have some name recognition. You've got to get pumped up by somebody else. Be part of a group like the IDW. Ostentatious, man. Ostentatious displays. 
Ostentatious displays of intellect. Ooh, I'm so smart. Let me use this 16-letter word when the five-letter word right over here sitting on the counter would work just fine. More people would understand it. No, I gotta use the big one. I need a beer. Oh, but back to my point, finally. (laughs) These These people keep to themselves to stay above the ridiculous simian fray that is Twitter and Facebook. They don't, they don't jump into these things anymore. And for the individual, that person, that's wise. But what does that do to overall public discourse? Now, understand, this is where discourse happens now. Discourse doesn't happen at the water cooler like it used to 30 years ago. You don't go to work now, talk about what you read in the newspaper. No, you have your discourse online. There's a reason the Russians targeted Facebook. They weren't hacking the New York Times. They're doing it again, and they're doing it on social media. Why do you suppose that is? Why do you suppose that's their method of choice? They're not hacking HuffPo. That's because that's where discourse takes place. That's where people get their perception of all things social and all things political. You don't have to like it. You don't have to even really want to agree with it, but if you think that's not the case, you're not living in reality. You can't say that it's not happening, that social media discourse is not the main discourse in the country. You can't say that and also claim that Russian tampering in the election was a real thing. You can't do that. And they're saying that it's going to get worse in 2020. It's still happening. Why are they targeting social media? Because... That's public square of the 21st century. Or at least this part of it. When the reasonable voices sort of fade away and get drowned out by the loud mouths, how does that affect people who depend on their own perception of public opinion? How do people measure public opinion? If the reasonable voices have gone away online and you've only got the the ridiculous idiots the loud mouth idiot screaming and uh, sort of the monkeys masturbating in the window. How much is that masturbating monkey in the window? If that's all you've got left, poo slinging monkeys, and you've got people trying to get a gauge on how people think and how people are feeling and which direction they're going, you got a couple of options. You can poll people, or you can be lazy and look at your Twitter feed, see who's emailing you, see who's calling you. It's not people who have checked out of the political process because it's so ridiculous. I can tell you that. It's activists. It's extremists. People hyperly involved, over-involved. People drunk on their activism. One way or another. doesn't matter which side. It makes no difference whatsoever. Those are the people who get listened to because they are the ones who are making noise because the sensible people have checked out. And when all the people have given up and checked out, the loud mouths are driving to the debate. I wonder how much that's affecting things politically today, as far as political parties go. And I wonder if it's even repairable at this point. How do you get people to come back and start engaging this? And start engaging, how do you do that? I don't even want to do this anymore. I swear to God, I wish you could, I wish you will hear part of it. I've committed to that in the last segment. I don't even want to 
take part in this anymore. I do not want to engage anyone on social media most days. You give me two weeks on Twitter, I hate everyone. I'm disgusted with everyone. And this is what I do, right? If I am disgusted with you, the collective you, not the Tonzillophile, of course not. You are a special breed of listener. You're sophisticated, erudite, and a connoisseur of fine electronic media. A connoisseur. I say it right, Robin? Rabin. I wish I knew how to say your damn name. A connoisseur. But how do you bring them back to that? How do you bring people back to the process? I, you get to have a politician come out, oh, gotta have unity. <laughs> no, it isn't you, Mr. Biden or Bernie. Not you, Lizzie. It's what's happening in the discourse, what's happening in, in the society and how people despise each other and how people, uh, the bilateral deplorability of people. De- deplorality. I'm going to make up a word right here on the Escaping the Cave podcast. Deplorality. Deplorables. Deplorality. People check the fuck out. They don't want to talk to you anymore. They don't want to talk to me anymore. I don't want to talk to you anymore, and you're probably reasonable. I don't want to say anything. I'm afraid you're going to be an idiot. I'm afraid you're kidding me. I'm afraid you're, you're just concealing your idiocy until, I don't know, organic coffee comes up and you got some opinion bomb you need to drop on me and then tell me I'm an idiot. I used organic coffee there because I've used organic kale these five times since the resurrection. There's a lot more to this, my friends. But I'm telling you, propping up the illusion of wisdom and knowledge has not only become fashionable, it's become accepted. It's how things are done now. People really think they're as smart as their Google search. They do. Don't shake your head at me. Yes, they do. They've started to believe it. They've started to believe that repackaging someone else's doctrine, rewording it, rather than thinking something up themselves, makes them wise. Makes them smart. They've come to believe their own bullshit. Superficial exposure to information is also often mistaken for mastery of the subject. Pick your own example. Dr. Eli points out that rather than knowing anything well, we know less about more. That's a really good way to put it. I'm going to say that again. Dr. Eli points out that rather than knowing anything well, we know less about more. We're generalists rather than specialists. We know hardly we know a little bit about everything. And taken to the extreme, he suggests that this tendency will leave us knowing nothing about everything. His last paragraph of the uh, Illusion of Knowledge chapter, again, this was all written in 2011, right? is uh, sobering, it's prescient, and more apt than ever as we further descend into bilateral extremism, pseudoscience, and comfortable anti intellectualism. I will give that to you when we come back. This is Escaping the Cave podcast, Christopher Media Network, also Google, iTunes, Google Play, rather, iTunes and uh, Stitcher and some other places too, I think. I don't know. Where are we at, Chris? All right. Going to wrap this up. This is going to get a little weird here for a couple of minutes as I uh, start to transition into what I'm going to do next. But uh, the last thing I talked about, the last thing I said, I'm going to repeat a little bit here to give you just a, a little reinforcement of the context. 
right, that this online information fix, this democratization of information taken to the extreme will leave us knowing nothing about everything. Now, this is going to be a direct quote from Chapter 8 of Virtually You by Dr. Eli. All right? He says that John Gale and Suzanne Douglas express their fear that the Internet is devolving into mindlessness. He uses a quote here, creating a citizenry that can't think or read, is unfit for jury duty, and can be entertained but not enlightened. End quote. Continue to read here. Yes, the great equalizing effect of the Internet wipes out differences in experience, stature, and roles by erasing discrepancies in our access to information. But instead of seeing our democracy truly enhanced by this, we risk moving toward, this is where it gets creepy, we risk moving toward demagoguery where everybody is indeed equal, equally misinformed. Keep in mind, this was written in 2011. I'll continue. Given how the internet has shortened our attention spans when it comes to reading and meaningful analysis, and giving the psychological 140 keystroke limit we now set for ourselves before declaring informational overload, it can become easier for demagogues to spread their rhetorical bullets and one-liner propaganda slogans. Does this sound familiar to you? Don't go nuts, children in cages. I'm going to repeat that last line. It can become easier for demagogues to spread their rhetorical bullets and one-liner propaganda slogans. Consider that foreshadowing, my friends. I'll continue. So that they are not believed, their veiled half-truths require vertical probing. If you don't want to believe this stuff, paraphrasing now, if you don't want to believe this stuff, if you don't want to believe their veiled half-truths, it requires vertical Probing, dissection, debate. But one is too distracted for that. You can't do it. That is creepy considering it was written in 2011. A full five years before. The orange demagogue, the orange demifrog, decided to slither forth from the Republican swamp and managed to get elected. That's where we're going next, kids. There's a reason that I highlighted the one-line propaganda slogan point. Because, as Walter Lippmann pointed out, I think I used this quote in the last podcast... I don't have it in front of me, I'll paraphrase, that any society that lacks the tools to distinguish between truth and falsehood does not remain a free society. It's a quote that's almost 100 years old. If you lack, as a culture and as a society, the tools to differentiate between truth and falsehood, you do not remain free. You become susceptible to propaganda. Propaganda is the primary tool of any authoritarian it requires efficiently powerful propaganda to maintain itself. This is true in any totalitarian state. We all have the stereotypical images in our head of tasks. Maybe we have one of Fox News, but it's not limited to just those. MSNBC is a propaganda outlet. We are so awash in propaganda today that we cannot tell what it is anymore. And part of that is because we do not 
care. We're only concerned about doing righteous battle with the evil other. Winning, owning the liberals, owning the conservatives, owning the Trump bots. We just want to win. We'll take any weapon we can find, and they're happy to provide it. And they're happy to craft your opinions for you in the process. That is the essence of propaganda. It's the formulation, the crafting of man's opinions. It's the essence of propaganda, telling you what to believe. That is why I offended so many of you when I said most of your opinions are thoughtless. Literally, they are adopted. They have been inseminated, ejaculated into your minds by your ideology or your doctrine. Maybe your religion, in the literal sense, not the political kind. Most of your opinions do not belong to you. If you lack the capacity for critical thought and creating a state of intellectual autonomy with your mind, your thoughts are not your own. The best tonic, the best antidote, the best antibody I have found for that are Ralph Waldo Emerson's self-reliance and John Stuart Mill's on liberty. These are sort of how-to manuals and uh, inspirational speeches or pamphlets, I guess, in Emerson's case, about how to trust yourself, how to reclaim the autonomous mind, how to become a man again instead of a chirping parrot. That is the only way forward. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that we're going to win this battle. I'm not convinced we are at all. The sophistication, advancement of both the technology and the propaganda may be too much for us. And I don't know. I, I'd have to think about this. But what's peculiar is that we have these two equally populated camps with their own specific propaganda. Their own informational missiles, scud missiles, pointed directly at each other. The propaganda demonizing the other camp equally. How does that end? How does that end when you've got two equally stocked camps ready to kill each other politically? But none of the, none of the people in either one of these camps really give two shits either way about telling truth from falsehood, about dissecting and extracting propaganda from their minds. How does that end? How can that possibly end well? <sighs> I don't think it can. Not hopeful. I'm not going to blow smoke up your butt. Some, people, some of you are more hopeful than me. Great. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But I'll tell you what. You guys remind me a lot. A lot of the rhetoric you're giving me, this dismissive talk, oh, it's not going to be that bad, reminds me a lot of the talk that I heard before Donald Trump took office, before he was elected. Yeah, he'll never be elected. People aren't going to elect him. Yes, they did. I'm going to say it again. I saw it coming for any of you. Any of y'all. I saw it. You didn't. And you sound exactly like you did four years ago. Three years ago, however long it was. Are you sure? And with, with the advent of the technology in the echo chambers and everything that I talked about, there's become... <laughs> Here it comes. You've been waiting for this, I'm sure, today. This thing 
online, specifically on Twitter. I talked about how, you know what, let me just play this and I'll come out of the back end of it. Prepare yourselves. This gets a little intense. Twitter is a cesspool, man. It's a shit show. Tried to limit my profanity on this podcast since I've resurrected it. I apologize. I'm not going to put that filter on today. Fuck that. I'm going to speak today. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Put some antiseptic on your fucking eardrums. This is going to get ugly today. It, it, Twitter. I keep running into this thing on, on Twitter, and I know you've seen it. You've had to have seen it if you've spent more than an hour on that platform in your lifetime. But people, people are aware just how shitty and disgusting that platform is from top to bottom. People are trying to figure it out. I wonder why Twitter's this way. I talked about this, I think, in the last podcast. Why are people so angry? And I keep running into this phrase, well, welcome to Twitter. <laughs> like you're some fucking retard or something. Oh, that's just Twitter. You've seen that. I know you've seen it. It's one of the most asinine things I have ever seen. Well, I, I apparently missed when I signed up for Twitter here a few weeks ago, or whenever the fuck it was, I apparently missed the optional accessory that goes up your asshole and takes control of your cognition and turns you into a raging cunt. Well, it's just Twitter. <laughs> Is that how this fucking works? Did I miss this? Is that on Amazon somewhere? Can I get it cheap, maybe used? Disinfected, of course. I don't want your asshole juice up mine. That's just Twitter. Bullshit. This is your excuse to go run around without any fucking accountability, completely anonymous, and be a little fucking cunt. That's it. It's just Twitter. Fuck you. You're an asshole. It's become the id on parade. This is what people would be like. Now, I know you're going to be out there making your little fucking excuses, especially if you enjoy the Twitter, enjoy running around like monkeys, attacking people on their little scooters as they drive by. I have a great video I found this week uh, on Facebook. I'd love to post it to Twitter. If it wasn't a Facebook video, it would be on there right now. I would tweet that motherfucker every 30 seconds all day. It's a, a video of these monkeys, and people walk by and they just jump on them. That's what Twitter is. You are the monkey. <gasps> Get him. Attack. It's just Twitter. Welcome to Twitter. Fuck you. You are an asshole. Again, I think this medium, and to a degree Facebook as well, and, and, and every comment section since the beginning of the fucking internet, has given people the means and the capacity to scrape whatever domestication society has put on. This is the state of who we would be in the jungle. If you can think abstractly, if you're capable of that, and if you're listening to this podcast, I assume you are. This, If you go onto Twitter and you just run around, spend two or three hours just going and, and clicking on every random post you find, preferably political ones, but even baseball, for fuck's sakes. I started another podcast, a baseball podcast, because I wanted an escape from this bullshit. I thought it would feel good. Baseball Twitter's worse, almost, than political Twitter. It doesn't matter what, what you're discussing. Exhibitionist country. That's what they should rename Twitter. 
It's ridiculous. But I think that if you went and you exercised your abilities of abstraction, your imagination just a little bit, wander around on Twitter for a few hours, you're going to see exactly what people are. I don't think it's just Twitter. I think that's the naked id running around. That if you were to scrape the thin veneer of civilization off of us, it would resemble Twitter. I think that's where the id goes to frolic. I think that that is closer to the human reality than civilization and domestication. The self-domestication process that we've put ourselves through for the last few thousand years. Twitter is where we came from, and Twitter is where we want to return to. I don't like that thought. I don't like saying it. It feels like cynicism. But at some point, I mean, I'm sick and tired of that fucking accusation, too. Oh, you're just being cynical, Todd. You gotta have hope. Fuck you. Stop it. At some point, there's a really fine line. I don't know if I've used it on this podcast before, but there's a fine line between cynicism and realism. There's also a fine line between optimism and delusion. Are you sure that I'm not the one who's on the wrong side of one of these lines? Are you absolutely sure of that? Because I'm not. I th- I'm pretty confident that when I say Twitter and social media and these stupid fucking comment sections posing as discussion, when I say I think that's closer to the human species, the, 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 the natural state of who and what we are, I think I'm on the side of realism, not cynicism. You have better show your work if you're going to levy that accusation to me. Because it would appear that all the evidence is, is on my side. That's some full frontal Toddzilla. That's some old stuff there. That came out of me in a torrent the other day, and that's why I didn't uh, post the other podcast. That was actually, <laughs> if I'm being honest, some of the less vile stuff that I put out <clears throat> the other day, particularly toward the end of it. But anyway, you'll never hear that stuff, so it doesn't matter. But that's true. I think the uh, id on parade, I like that. I really like that imagery. That's what, that's exactly what I think that uh, Twitter specifically and social media in a lot of different ways has become. I think this is where the id, as I said in that little clip, I think that's, this is where the id goes to frolic. And later on in this book, Dr. Eli connected another dot. And it goes back, uh, what, 100, 200 years, maybe a little longer. Hobbes, Leviathan. You're a philosophical person. Are you familiar with Leviathan? hope I'm saying it right. It may be a different pronunciation. All I've, I've never heard it discussed. I've just read it. But it's a pretty cynical uh, outlook. Thomas Hobbes put forth a couple of hundred years ago, and he thinks that the natural state of man is barbaric. And I think I'm becoming more convinced every week the natural state of the id is what we see on Twitter. And that might be the authentic state of the undomesticated, untrained beast that resides in each one of us. Without informational control of some sort, we will find ourselves in a state of informational anarchy. The shaved ape might revert back to its natural, barbarous state. This is Thomas Hobbes, too. It's not just me. This isn't your friendly neighborhood Tonzilla coming up with us all in some vacuum here. A lot of people have put this forth before, and it's terrifying. It's not a happy humanist, man is God, 
oh, here comes the brotherhood of man. It's inevitable. It's not, not down that line at all. It's quite the opposite, actually. And again, maybe I'm wrong. But I am really uninterested in assuming, you know, the good is good viewpoint on this. Now, it's part of the Emerson thing I talked about, I think, in another podcast. I think I put it out there. Yeah, I did use it. I used the quote in the one I just threw away, <laughs> too. But I think I put it out in the one I put out before this, that you've got to question whether good is actually good. You've got to question the accepted standpoint, the humanist standpoint. And just about every human being I know likes to come from the standpoint and the, and the, the position that human beings are at their core good. That our natural state is to live together in peace and harmony, have a Coke and a smile. I want to buy the world a Coke and finish it with Wub. Right? That's what all of us like to believe resides down at the core of who we are. But the problem is that it might not be. And the question I think in my head, and I'm going to ask it, I'm going to continue to ask it. If you don't like it, you don't have to listen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to examine that. I'm going to keep looking at it. I'm going to keep you know, offering and allowing for the possibility. Because the evidence seems pretty clear to me. You, take away, you, you offer people a, a, the anonymity. You take away the accountability. How do they behave? The closest thing we can see is the Twitter zoo. That is how people choose to behave when they're not held accountable. And there's no first-person consequences to their behavior. You put those people in tribes, in groups, in a lawless state where there are no consequences, I think Twitter becomes the organic reality. Thomas Hobbes, it would seem, agreed with me. Or maybe I should say I agree. Now, I came up with this before I read Leviathan. <laughs> so he agrees with me. <laughs> However you want to look at it. But you don't like that idea. That's fine. I understand. It's uncomfortable. But I, I, I ask you this, maybe a philosophical notion. Let's play the philosophy game here. How would cancer see itself? What would the personal perspective of itself be of a tumor? Would the tumor also have a narcissistic interpretation of itself, seeing itself as good? What about Stalin? Did Stalin think he was evil? Or was he doing good for the people? Was he doing good for mankind, advancing, progressing mankind? Insert your own little Hitler reference here. The question must be asked. The times and the evidence and the course we're on demands it. And I wonder, was Leviathan both a look backwards and a look forward? Again, it comes back to Lippmann for me, man. Any loss of the ability or willingness to tell truth from falsehood leads one to a loss of intellectual autonomy. You're no longer a man, but a piece of malleable clay whose opinions are inseminated by someone else. And I've already indicated why that's important, because that's the goal of every PR expert, every media relations and public relations person, who are literally the same exact thing, by the way, propagandists. Public relations and propaganda are literally proper use of the word the same damn Thing. The man who coined the term public relations said as much. He needed a new word because propaganda became stigmatized by the wars, the world wars. Needed something softer. And I'm of the opinion that propaganda has combined with an unwillingness to tell truth from falsehood 
to create an environment where we are so awash in it that we cannot tell the difference between propaganda and fact anymore. I don't think as a collective we could tell the difference. Happy thought. Not exactly um, <laughs> motivational material. You're not going to put a lot of those quotes on a <laughs> sunset picture and hang it in your office so you can look at it when you're depressed and <laughs> feel better about the world, are you? Uh, sorry about that. That's not why I'm here. I'm not here to coddle you. We're going to go some interesting places, though, moving forward. The illusion of wisdom thing is, uh, I think it's important to, to lay that down as a foundation. Because when you abandon a tentative connection or a tethering or even a thread of connection to external truth, and you can no longer differentiate either by choice, cognitive ability, Maybe it's just not out there. Maybe none of the media outlets are providing it. It doesn't matter. Functionally, it's the same thing. When there is no mechanism to tell truth from falsehood, tyranny is not far behind. One side will win. When you have competing propaganda models, one side is eventually going to win. It doesn't matter how long it takes. It doesn't matter how much damage is done, how many bodies are lying in the gutter. Some, at some point, either the country is going to fall apart or one of these sides is going to win. And either way, something's going to fill that vacuum. Whatever fills that vacuum will impose itself upon the other. I hate to use Nazi Germany. I hate to use Stalinist Russia. But do you think that the Nazis felt like they were living under tyranny? Like the, the members of the Nazi party, do you think that they saw their country as tyrannical? Do you suppose that the communists, the members of the communist party in Stalinist Russia, even after that, I mean, running up to Brezhnev and Gorbachev, do you suppose that they saw their government as, as, as tyrannical and oppressive, as authoritarian, or do they just see it as the right way to go? And tyranny is, in a lot of ways, and authoritarianism is, in a lot of ways, in the eyes of the beholder. If you're a member of the party, do you see it as tyrannical? In our case, things finally shake themselves out if one of these ideological camps indeed do become authoritarian and do indeed win, will... Tyranny and authoritarianism be a matter of perspective on which side you reside on. Of course it will. That's how it works. Just because you specifically aren't being tyrannized does not mean you do not live in a tyrannical state. It's incredibly important, I think, to understand the mechanisms of propaganda, how it works, how it works you over, how it is you can hear the phrase fake news. And no collusion, no obstruction. You can hear all those and be repulsed. But yet, you'll hear kids in cages coming out of various mouths on your side and it won't bother you a bit. Or vice versa. It's amazing how that works. I'll be able to explain this to you very soon. There's a method. There's a reason it's done. Thank you, Jacques Ellul. We will get to that next week. I should talk about Game of Thrones or something. How'd you like the uh, final episode? I was—I thought they were going to cheese out when Sam stood up and started talking about democracy. I was like, no, don't end this shit like that. But I did call Bran a couple of weeks ago. I'm like, you know, I think it's going to be Bran just made too much sense. Why would you have this smart guy and not make him king? Come on. Guy can see the future in the past. Make him king. Duh. 
been listening to the Escaping the Cave podcast. I'm on the Christopher Media Network. Go check out all the shows over there. I have a new baseball podcast up there called the Baseball Toddcast. It's a clever name. I like it. I couldn't think of anything better. <laughs> I tried really hard. I'm also on Google Play. I am also on the Stitcher. And I'm also on the iTunes. So if you're listening on one of those three, go check out Christopher Media and Vice. Uh, Versa. Also hit up ETC Pod at ETC Pod on Twitter as well. And I am drained. I am about ready to fall over. Till next time. Uh, thanks for listening. So long. <laughs>